All right, then we're ready to get started now uh, with the uh, next section. So hopefully everybody has come back for the break. I think that was a great panel discussion. This generated a lot of uh, uh, discussions in the chat room. We're going to, many of the talks that are given here uh, get changed at the last minute. I think that the uh, next talk is one that uh, Greg was probably working on uh, uh, 10 minutes ago to uh, change what was in the news today. But uh, uh, I think we're all interested uh, acutely in what the health policy changes in 2021 will be. And Greg Mellet is somebody who's really been at many different levels that gives him perspective on this. He's for the last seven years been the vice president for policy at AMFAR. But before that, he had a major role in the White House uh, on uh, President Obama's uh, uh, HIV strategy and policies. He's been at CDC. So he's had a lot of opportunities to get insights to where we're going. So, uh, Greg, we're looking forward to uh, what you tell us our future is going to be like. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. I really appreciate that. Um, welcome, everybody. Um, I, I think that this is going to be a bit of a departure from your regularly scheduled program, uh, but I'm going to be talking about um, projected health policy changes in 2021 and um, what we might expect with a new administration. Um, I received um, funding from Vive as well as Gilead, um, as well as Merck um, in the past couple of months. Um, in terms of learning objectives, uh, we're going to talk about um, listing the various instruments of presidential power. I'm hoping that you'll be able to learn about uh, the impact of COVID-19 and how that might impact ending the HIV-AIDS epidemic efforts. Um, and then I'm also going to list some of the possible Biden administration appointees that we're hearing about here in Washington, D.C. So to begin, um, many of us already know the election day results, um, or rather the election week results, um, that Vice President-elect Biden, as well as Senator Kamala Harris, uh, now VP-elect VP Kamala Harris, were elected. Um, about 5 million votes and counting still uh, that um, Joe Biden uh, was able to get um, compared to President Trump. Uh, we see that there were seats that were lost among Democrats in the House, and right now the Senate is a bit of an open question, uh, where right now the main major uh, place of contention is Georgia, uh, where we're trying to see whether or not there are going to be two seats in Georgia that will flip uh, to give uh, essentially power to the Democrats, just barely. And it's really the centrality of this new swing state um, that's driving a lot of the energy right now in the political sphere in Washington, D.C., um, and across the nation. Um, and why that's important is because if Biden really wants to be able to enact a, a, a far-ranging agenda, he really needs to have the Senate to do so, um, as well as the House. If he doesn't have the Senate, then he's most likely going to have to use other types of presidential powers uh, to move the uh, ball forward in his favor. Um, some of the instruments that presidents have are executive orders, presidential memoranda, or presidential proclamations. Um, now, executive orders are basically um, uh, documents that help Officers and agencies of the executive branch manage the operations within the federal government itself. Executive orders are published in the Federal Register. Um, there's also presidential memoranda, which are essentially like executive orders, and they also have the force of law for the executive branch. Um, but there's not an established process for them, and they're not 
issued um, as publications and not numbered. Um, and then last, we have presidential proclamations, which is essentially a statement that's issued by a president on a matter of public policy. Um, and it's usually used in ceremonial purposes. So, for instance, when I was in the Obama White House, um, we uh, were lucky to have President Obama issue proclamations for World AIDS Day, for World Hepatitis Day, um, and other proclamations that, that really showed where the White House interests were um, in specific issues. Um, of all of these three instruments of presidential power, of course, the one that carries the most force is the executive order. And that's what we expect if um, uh, President Biden, uh, Biden is not able to win the Senate, um, that he's going to be using and exercising that authority. Um, and it's certainly an authority that President Trump um, has exercised within his four years of office as well. Um, he has issued about 175, nearly 176 executive orders to date. Uh, and his first executive order was actually issued um, on January 20th, uh, where he signed an executive order that was moving towards interim procedures to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. So the Affordable Care Act was clearly on his agenda um, from day one that he entered office. Now, there are specific administrative actions that the Biden administration is certainly going to reassess. And these are administrative actions that have been taken by the Trump administration. So, for instance, we have the Mexico City policy. Um, there's a Title X funding issue, the public charge rule, Medicaid work requirements, uh, rejoining the WHO, um, rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, uh, reinstating the Dreamers program, overturning the Muslim travel ban, uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord as well as overturning the transgender participation in the military ban. So there's there's many different things that I'm sure the Biden campaign has already set its sight upon within the first three months or even the first six months of actions that they're going to take, that they're going to be reassessing from the Trump administration. Now, what do we know about the Biden administration and their positions on specific issues that might be of interest to us? Um, so in terms of COVID-19, there's, there's specific things that we do know. Uh, we know that President-elect Biden has a COVID-19 plan that includes improved testing, expanded production of personal protective equipment, and safe vaccine development. Um, and specifically, the plan includes... First, shifting communications to public health experts, so moving communications out of the White House to CDC or NIH. Uh, two, having a COVID-19 response that is greater than vaccines, uh, really recognizing that our response um, is about, you know, as much prevention in terms of masks, in terms of social distancing, uh, as well as other activities and not just vaccines. Um, issuing mask mandates uh, the fourth is reconnecting with the global efforts such as the COVAX initiative. And the fifth is to improve supply chain organization as well as coordination across the U.S. government to increase PPE um, and making sure that PPP is available at the state level. Now, Mr. Biden has also said that he will ask governors to institute a mask mandate um, and that he would impose a national mask mandate in federal buildings and on interstate transportation. And, of course, earlier this week, all of you heard that um, Vice President Biden um, has announced a COVID-19 task force led by Drs. Vivek Murthy, um, David Kessler, as well as Marcella Nunez-Smith. So something that's very exciting that I think many of the scientists are, are very happy to see. In terms of health care and incoming Biden administration, uh, President-elect Biden supports expanding the ACA and creating a public option. And it's something that he has referred to as Biden care. Um, he's 
allowed to ensure that Americans with pre-existing conditions will continue to have access to health care. And he's also proposed lowering Medicare eligibility age to 60 from 65. Um, President-elect Biden does not support a single-payer health care proposal known as Medicare for All or eliminating private insurance. In terms of HIV, uh, which most of us are, is the type of work that many of us are involved in, a Biden administration will likely support reinstating the Office of National AIDS Policy. That's my old office in the White House and the Obama administration. Um, they will likely support a next iteration of the National HIV AIDS Strategy, as well as a new ending the HIV AIDS epidemic plan. Um, and that office is probably going to support um, the Office of National Drug Control Policies Plan, um, considering the fact that we're seeing uh, 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 quite a few overdose deaths that are taking place right now during the COVID-19 era. And we really need to turn our attention again to the opioid epidemic and some of the issues that are taking place there. There is though some less clarity that we have in terms of the Biden administration and global HIV initiatives, although we know um, that President-elect Biden supports PEPFAR as well as the Global Fund. Um, and we know that President-elect Biden has publicly supported ending HIV in the U.S. by 2020. Incredibly ambitious. Um, the President Trump's plan was by 2030, which was already ambitious. Uh, 2025, um, of course, could be fairly difficult. And I want to talk about why this might be difficult and specifically what um, are some of the challenges that we might expect for ending the HIV AIDS epidemic. Uh, some of the challenges that I'm going to be talking about are from a new paper that I've just published in the Journal of International AIDS Society, um, where I was looking at COVID-19 disparities as well as HIV disparities and comparing them. Um, but also looking at the implications for ending the HIV AIDS epidemic or EHE that I like to use for short. So one of the biggest challenges that we have um, for the new administration and other administrations in addressing EHE um, are obstacles that are first unrelated to COVID-19. Um, and that is, for instance, administration transitions. When you're going from one administration to another, you're not sure whether or not um, they are going to have the same priorities in HIV that you will. Um, another obstacle is um, ending versus a sustained ending of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, many times when people talk about ending the HIV AIDS epidemic, um, it's as if there's going to be something that's going to end at a particular date and we don't have to think about it any longer. And that's, of course, not what's going to happen. Um, we need to have a sustained response to keep the epidemic ended and to keep us from resurging um, with HIV, specifically with populations with high prevalence, uh, background prevalence of HIV. Um, and then another obstacle, of course, is repealing the Affordable Care Act and the fact that that is right now before the Supreme Court for repeal, uh, where you essentially can't have an EHE plan if you're repealing the Affordable Care Act. So first, um, I just want to talk about some of these issues. The first is priorities changing from administration to administration. And we've certainly seen that with HIV um, in the past. So for instance, under the Clinton administration, President Clinton's priority was really issuing the first domestic HIV plan and increasing domestic HIV prevention. He established the Office of National AIDS Policy um, as well as launch the Minority AIDS Initiative. Um, by the time that President Bush came into office, his priority was global HIV, and he introduced and launched the PEPFAR program. However, he deprioritized domestic HIV programs and research, um, and ONAP was left unstaffed for quite long periods of the Bush administration. 
by the time that President Obama came into office, his priority was domestic HIV. Um, and uh, he also prioritized the national HIV AIDS strategy creation as well as the Affordable Care Act. However, he deprioritized PEPFAR and flat funded uh, the established global health initiative. Uh, so we have different priorities that are taking place there. Um, and then again, with President Trump, he prioritized domestic HIV and ending the HIV AIDS program. However, he deprioritized the national HIV AIDS strategy, which is now an HHS plan and no longer a White House plan. ONAP has been defunct under the Trump administration. The Affordable Care Act has been at risk of dismantling under the Trump administration. Um, and at least in each one of the president's budgets, PEPFAR has been gutted in those White House budgets. So you could see that one of the issues that we have here is that different administrations have different priorities and those priorities change. So it doesn't mean that we have um, an EHE response that's going to be sustained for 10 or 15 or 20 years um, when there's a risk of some of those responses changing from administration to administration. The other issue, of course, is the Affordable Care Act. Um, we know that people living with HIV now um, have rates of uh, uninsurance that are comparable with the general population, which is great. And a lot of that is owed to the Affordable Care Act. Um, however, um, Medicaid expansion still remains an issue in the United States. Uh, we know that those states that have expanded Medicaid, and this is a great graphic from Kaiser Family Foundation, that for people living with HIV in those states, they are far less likely to be uninsured compared to non-expansion states, and they're far more likely to be enrolled in the Medicaid program. And when we take a look at the president's plan for ending the HIV AIDS epidemic, it includes 50 jurisdictions as well as seven states. Five of those seven states have not expanded Medicaid. And that's problematic because we know that expanding Medicaid is associated with increasing HIV testing. It's associated with greater access to opioid addiction medications. It's associated with a greater sustained viral suppression among people living with HIV. It's also associated with greater ACA enrollment as well as PrEP access. So we really have a job ahead of us um, in those states that have not expanded Medicaid under the EHE effort. The other issue that we see in the EHE effort is that when you take a look at those states that have not expanded Medicaid, um, particularly those five states uh, of the seven states in EHE, you can see that there are very high rates of uninsurance. So this is a chart that my group put together looking at rates of uninsurance by race and ethnicity in those seven states, um, uh, as well as people in the 50 local jurisdictions for ending the HIV AIDS program, and then nationally, comparing it nationally. And you can see that it doesn't matter what race or ethnicity, um, that you see higher rates of uninsurance uh, for people in those seven states of the EHE program. And, and that's something that's certainly going to be an obstacle um, for quite some time. And we know it's not just an obstacle in terms of HIV. Uh, it's certainly an obstacle when it comes to COVID-19 as well. And because of the lack of resources that are being depleted at the state level from COVID-19 and the COVID-19 recession, you're seeing states like Missouri, Oklahoma, that are beginning to implement or voting for Medicaid expansion. Um, and there have also been estimates from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities uh, that as many as 650,000 un uninsured essential workers could gain Medicaid coverage if these holdout states adopted expansion. So this is something that is important, not just for EHE, but for COVID-19, as well as other issues at the state level. 
Another challenge for EHE is um, that there are similar challenges facing COVID-19, as well as the ending the HIV AIDS epidemic plan. One of the challenges that's facing both is that they're both decentralized. So what's taking place is planning mainly at the state level rather than a centralized response. Um, there are some good aspects to that, but there are also some bad aspects to that, that we're not sure that really the interventions that matter the most, that could be scaled the most, that are most important are actually taking place in each area. The second part is that um, when you have new innovations that you see rising inequity, um, uh, by those groups that are higher, um, that are more likely to have COVID-19 or to have HIV. So, for instance, um, you, you see that um, during with PrEP and the arrival of PrEP that African-Americans and Latinos are less likely to have access to PrEP. Same thing with COVID-19 testing. Um, when we first started COVID-19 testing, they were almost uniformly placed in white neighborhoods compared to black and brown neighborhoods, despite the fact that black and brown neighborhoods had higher rates of COVID-19. Um, and then we also see that they fail to address the social determinants of health. And that point, I really want to talk a little bit more about. Um, you can see here that um, these are data from New York City, and you see uniformly um, that those places with high poverty levels had higher levels of cases for COVID-19, hospitalizations, as well as deaths. Um, and then we published a paper uh, where we looked at those counties in the U.S. that were disproportionately African-American and found that 52%, that even though they're 22% of counties, they represented 52% of cases for COVID-19 and 58% of deaths nationally. And the main drivers um, that we saw was unemployment, percent uninsured in these counties, as well as the composition of households, households that were dense, dense uh, living. Um, what we did find, however, that was different was that underlying health conditions such as diabetes, heart disease, um, HIV or cerebrovascular disease were not associated with COVID-19 cases or deaths. So really, it's about these social determinants of health. And neither the plans for EHE or for COVID-19 really deal with these issues. We published a subsequent paper looking at residential segregation, and we found that those counties in the U.S. that are 88% white or more have far fewer diagnoses of COVID-19 as compared to those counties that are far more diverse. And you see exactly the same thing with HIV as well. And again, a social determinants of health issue. Um, and last, there was another paper that we published and that we've seen other papers published as well, where we found that those counties with higher proportions of monolingual Spanish speakers had higher rates of COVID-19. You see the same thing with HIV. Um, and there's a paper that was published in JAMA that basically found that those places, those counties that had um, greater rates of non-English speakers had greater rates of COVID-19. So again, these social determinants need to be planned um, in an EHE response as well as a COVID-19 response. And last, the last obstacle is that COVID-19 itself is going to be an obstacle to EHE efforts. Uh, and part of that are some of the disruptions that we're seeing in terms of HIV research, as well as disruptions in service availability, as well as CBO viability. Um, but one of the main disruptions is just going to be sustaining the funding for EHE. Um, there was a wonderful paper that was put out by Georgetown Law School, uh, where they looked at um, the EHE response um, and some of the things that we need to do to really to sustain the EHE response. And basically, they found that we need to maintain commitment to funding the EHE initiative. We need to provide federal COVID-19 relief to states to minimize harmful health and social services cuts, and that we also have to strengthen the healthcare system and increase reliable financing for public health. All incredibly great ideas, exactly what we need to do. But each one of these is about funding 
EHE and into the future. Now, the problem with that um, is the fact that EHE right now, by estimates of the uh, Congressional Budget Office, is going to cost the United States about $9 trillion over the next 10 years. And you compare that to SARS, which was $40 billion, um, H1N1, which was $45 billion, and Ebola, which was $55 billion. We're looking at $9 trillion over 10 years. Um, and there was a follow-up estimate that was published in JAMA by Larry Summers and a colleague um, that actually revise an estimate that it's going to be actually $16 trillion is going to be the cost for the COVID response in the U.S. Now, what does that mean in terms of actually having enough funding uh, to cover an EHE effort or any other types of health programs if we're looking at this huge bill uh, to deal with COVID-19? What makes the matters worse is the fact that right now we're in the midst of escalating escalating cases as well as deaths um, for COVID-19. And this was just a chart that was shared in the Financial Times last week, uh, where you could see really clearly that both Brazil as well as India, which are among the three worst hit countries in the uh, the three worst hit countries in the world for COVID-19, that they managed to bend the curve and to reduce their infections. Whereas with the U.S., we are continuing to escalate the number of infections as well as deaths. Um, And that is certainly going to impact the funding that it's going to take to really finally overcome this pandemic. The last thing that is also important for us to consider, too, is the politicization of public health and fatigue and how that's going to confound efforts to stem transmission for COVID-19. The Biden administration is going to have a hard time in in really pulling this epidemic around. Um, We could see that for those 93 percent of 376 counties with the highest number of new cases per capita, um, that they voted overwhelmingly for President Trump. Um, And we see a time now where a new poll from Gallup that was actually just released yesterday, uh, where they've been asking Americans for the last few months, how likely are you uh, to follow the recommendations to stay at home for a month of a serious um, outbreak for COVID-19 in your community? Um, How likely are you to do that? Um, and that was 67% of Americans around March 30th. Um, by October 19th through November 1st, it fell to only 49% of Americans. So Americans are less likely uh, to follow some of these public health laws that we want to see to really try and curb the pandemic. And then I think one of the bigger issues that we have to face, too, is that unfortunately, this pandemic has been disproportionately impacting communities of color. It's something that my team and I and others have been publishing quite a bit about. We follow uh, the trends in those counties in the U.S. that are disproportionately African-American or disproportionately Latinx to see what's taking place with COVID-19. And over the last 14 days, we have seen huge increases in disproportionately Black counties in the Midwest, in the West, as well as the Northeast. We're seeing exactly the same thing for Latinx counties with a huge increase in cases relative to other counties in the South as well as the Midwest. So I'm afraid as well that we're going to see even more disproportionate impact of COVID-19 in these communities of color, which could also impact our HIV response because HIV disproportionately impacts these communities as well. So what does Biden administration staffing look like? What we might expect from the cabinet and beyond? Uh, well, we already heard uh, yesterday that Ron Klain is going to be 
uh, President Biden's uh, chief of staff. He is an excellent pick for the position. Everyone in D.C. absolutely thought that he was going to be the pick, and we're glad to see him there, particularly since he's already been chief of staff for uh, VP Biden um, and because he headed uh, the White House's successful Ebola response under the Obama administration. For Secretary of State, of course, a job that's um, integral for uh, the PEPFAR program, uh, we're going to see either Susan Rice or Senator Chris Coons. Um, William Burns is also a name that's been named. He's a former Deputy Secretary of State. Um, Mitt Romney's name has been named, as well as John Kerry and Tony Blinken, another former Deputy Secretary of State, as well as Senator Chris Murphy. For Veterans Affairs, the names of Pete Buttigieg and Robert McDonald has been named. Um, Robert McDonald is a former VA secretary under the Obama administration. For UN Ambassador, uh, there's Pete Buttigieg's name as well as Mike Wessel. Um, and then for HHS Secretary, um, possibly Andrea Palm. Andrea Palm, I believe, is the health secretary right now for um, Wisconsin Department of Health. She worked with me in the White House. She really moved forward um, our responses to the Affordable Care Act and is an incredible person. Also, Mandy Cohen, um, who's the head of HHS in North Carolina, has been named. David Kessler, the former FDA official, has been named. Uh, Vivek Murthy, um, who's the former attorney general, has also been named as a possible for HHS secretary as well as Andy Slavitt, um, who used to be the administrator for um, CMS. What we haven't heard is who are some of the names and possible names for Surgeon General, um, who are some of the possible names for CDC Director, as well as USAID Administrator. Um, and then, of course, um, who are some of the possible names for the Global AIDS Coordinator or PEPFAR Ambassador, and that's assuming uh, that Ambassador Burks does not return to that job. Uh, then, of course, there's the issue of if you do not have the Senate, um, and if you're not able to get many of these people confirmed, is there going to be a possibility of many of these individuals who are essentially act in acting positions, these acting high-level positions um, in, 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 in the White House, as well as part of the cabinet. Um, and this is something that we have seen um, really been a hallmark of the Trump administration. They have many cabinet officials who are in acting positions. This might also be something that um, may take place under the Biden administration. And to just sort of sum some of this up, I wanted to end with a perspective from an HIV survivor on how to survive a plague. And this is from Andrew Sullivan. And he said that, and this will change us. It must, this epidemic. All plagues change society and culture, reversing some trends while accelerating others. The one thing we know about epidemics is that at some point they will end. The one thing we don't know is who we will be by then. And I just want to extend that further by saying we just don't know what HIV and what EHE is going to look like by the time that we try to get closer to ending the epidemic and what the policies are going to be in place and under which administration we're going to be able to do that. So in summary, there are several executive orders, some with health um, relations as well as EHE implications that are going to be overturned soon by a Biden administration as soon as he takes office. The scope of Biden administration's work hinges upon the Senate's composition. Um, although currently being hampered by the Trump administration, transition efforts are already underway. Um, Vice President Biden has already articulated policy positions regarding healthcare, COVID-19, and HIV. And then there are challenges that remain in implementing EHE for the Biden as well as successive administrations. Um, but importantly, there is a deep bench of people with government experience who are being considered for key cabinet positions in the Biden administration. 
Um, and with that, I just wanted to leave you with my email as well as information on the dashboard that we have on following um, COVID-19 data by race and ethnicity in the United States. And I look forward to any questions that you might have. Thank you for the opportunity to present. Greg, thanks very much. That was really a, a wonderful overview of uh, what's to come. Uh, I know there'll be a number of questions. But let me start out uh, recognizing you're not a sociologist, but you mentioned the fact that in many states, there's a lot of HIV. Uh, there are a lot of uninsured people. There's a lot of COVID. You would think that people would vote according to uh, what would benefit them, you know, less HIV, less uh, uh, hospitals going out of business, less COVID. Why is it that uh, this doesn't seem to influence the electorate? You know, I, I think that that's sort of the $60,000 question. We, we, we really don't know why that hasn't influenced the electorate. And I think a lot of us were surprised when we saw the data that was published by AP showing um, which one of these counties voted for or how many of these counties uh, voted for President Trump. You know, I can only harken back to my experience. My, my husband is from rural Tennessee. Um, his whole family um, are, are, are Trump supporters. Um, and um, they believe that they haven't seen as much COVID-19 um, as the media portrays, um, despite the fact that when you take a look at data from their county, um, that the rates are increasing. So, you know, I, I think that um, there are some people who believe that um, even if COVID-19 is there and it's a factor that is Americans, um, this is something that we need to fight. We need to show some gumption. We should go out there and do something about it. Um, there are also this red-blue divide in terms of people who actually believe that COVID-19 is, is, is deadly and whether the fatality rates are as high as they are. So I think all of that sort of, you know, factors into uh, the way that people vote or decide to vote on some of these particular issues. Yeah, and uh, let me ask you, I'm sure that uh, uh, Mike will have a whole uh, li list of questions for you, but uh, is it realistic to think that we're going to make much progress on HIV in the next five years, given the economic problems we have and the challenge of COVID? Or is this a dream that unfortunately is not going to be a reality? You, you know, I, 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 I was a little negative in, in my remarks in my presentation by showing just how expensive our response to COVID-19 is going to be um, and the degree to which that might um, really take away from some of our other health priorities and, and HIV. I, we're definitely not going to be able to end HIV in the next five years. So we might be able to end it in a particular location in the country, perhaps um, one of those locations that are a little bit farther ahead um, in the next five years. But there is a great paper that um, was just published in AIDS where they modeled ending the HIV AIDS epidemic in six states. Um, and they found that the earliest that they were able to end the HIV epidemic in those, in those um, six locations um, was by 2040 um, and not by 2030. Uh, so I think because we have the COVID-19 crisis, because we have the funding um, issues that are associated with the COVID-19 crisis, that we're probably going to be well beyond even 2040 um, before we're able to end HIV across the U.S. Uh, we might be lucky by 2030 in ending it in perhaps one particular locality in the U.S. Okay, well, Dr. Sag has asked for equal time, so I'll yield to him. <laughs> Thanks, Henry. Uh, Greg, wonderful overview. One of the things you didn't talk about, it's always intriguing to think about who could get appointments, but have you heard anything about Attorney General? In my neck of the woods in Alabama, everybody's buzzing about the possibility of Doug Jones uh, being appointed. He and Biden go back 40 years. Do you know much about uh, thoughts on Attorney General appointments? 
I thought you were going to suggest Jeff Sessions, but no. Yeah, well, he he's available too. I understand. <laughs> I, but Doug Jones's name has definitely been um, put out there. There have been some other names that have been placed out there. I haven't been attuned as much to Attorney General because I I've I've really been thinking more about those individuals who are going to be associated with the EHE effort more in the health sure. field. Uh, but Doug Jones's name has certainly been 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 out there. I did hear the name of um, one of my colleagues that I worked with in the White House who is actually being considered right now uh, for Treasury Secretary, and I'm I'm very happy to see that. So it's it's a deep bench of of incredible people and um i think that um once he names his cabinet over the next two weeks that uh I, most of america can rest assured that we have some really good competent individuals who are there yeah let me segue back to some of the things you mentioned about the uh white house uh office of aids policy where you served and um i believe jeff crowley was there and others um tell us a little bit more about what that does for us. I mean, you have an insider's track. It was sort of more or less put aside for the last four years. When it comes back, what type of, what will we see in terms of difference in your opinion? Well, you know, I think that one of the things that's important is, um, to have an office of national AIDS policy within a White House. So I think under the Obama administration, it was the first time that it was moved into the White House off ONAP beforehand was off the grounds of the White House. The White House complex has is a big complex in D.C. Um, you have the main complex with uh, the Eisenhower Executive Office building with the White House itself. And then across the street, um, you have another complex where the Secret Service and others are located. And then there are other satellite offices around the White House. Um, ONAP used to be in one of those satellite offices. And, and it's more important to be in the actual White House grounds um, within spitting distance of the um, Oval Office. And and why that's important is because you're more likely to have the ear of the president as well as the vice president while you're there. And we could see it conclusively. Well, while I was there, we were able to, um, through the leadership of Jeff in our office, uh, have President Obama as well as Vice President um, Biden at at least, gosh, 15, 17 events over the period of our time there. Um, meanwhile, there were other offices that were not within the White House where they never saw the president and they never saw the vice president. Um, and having that counsel with the president and the vice president is important. Having the president, and the vice president able to issue executive orders to really give the executive branch its marching orders is incredibly important. Um, having the president be able to articulate directly to policymakers some of the work that he wants to see in terms of policy that can come out in conjunction with the work that you're doing. So that's why ACA was released in conjunction with the National HIV AIDS Strategy because they really are tied with one another. That type of coordination is important. Um, and I'm hoping under a Biden administration that they're going to bring ONAP back into the White House again um, so that we can have that type of influence. And what about the interaction with HHS and and the HAB and uh, that type of thing? Uh, I'm sure you guys talked a lot with them and coordinated. Absolutely. I mean, we all worked hand in glove. And um, one of the remarkable things uh, is that, you know, a big aspect of the national HIV strategy was to promote coordination across government agencies around HIV. Up until that point, that type of collaboration was more um, – uh, it was very informal, um, if it happened at all. Uh, 
I remember the first time that we put together the interagency process for the National HIV AIDS strategy and had CDC, HRSA, and everybody all in the same room together, um, that many of the people kept saying this was the first time that they had all been in a room together working in conjunction with one another on a specific topic. And, and that type of concerted effort is important. Um, and it's important to have the White House coordinate that type of effort. Uh, so I, I'm hoping that that's something that we're going to be able to see again with the incoming administration. So Lisa Stadja has a question about uh, a press release or a Biden release about a new infectious disease and inequalities initiative. Do you know much about that or can share it? You know, have you heard about that? I, I, I haven't heard anything about it. I have heard that there is going to be a focus on inequities uh, for the next administration. And that focus is probably going to carry across several different offices. But I, I haven't heard anything about this this new office. Okay. I yield my time back to Dr. Mazur. Any other questions? No, Greg, that was really a a wonderful uh, overview. And uh, I think when you come back next year, you can tell us how many of your prophecies were realized. But uh, uh, (laughs) thanks for uh, uh, for that insight. Yeah, Uh, really wonderful. uh, I appreciate it.